Greetings and welcome to the Wolf in Tune Music and Mindfulness Podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode, which features Justin Beretta from the electronic supergroup The Glitch Mob. The Glitch Mob, I've been aware of for many years. Uh, they were a cutting-edge electronic group that's been around for a while, and they started out the Low End Theory Club in L.A., which has been enormously influential. I just saw some of their uh, YouTube videos are getting upwards of 25 million views. And uh, I've been excited about talking to Justin because not only is he a noteworthy musician who has a successful career over a pretty long period of time, but he's also had a very interesting journey in the fields of meditation, concentration, and mindfulness, starting with TM and then going through Vipassana or mindfulness meditation, not to mention a few uh, experiments in the world of psychedelics. And I think you'll find that the experiences and the lessons and insights that he's drawn from them will be very captivating and illuminating. So without further ado, here is Justin Beretta. So is Hannah giving me the green light? Green light. Okay. We're live. So thank you so much, Justin Beretta, for coming. Thanks really, for having me. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Me too. And I love the beads you're wearing. Is there any significance to that? Um, the beads just remind me. It's a little it's a little reminder of mindfulness just in my everyday, um, everyday practice. Because I, sometimes I'll do the, the the mala meditation. So what's this meditation? So the um, the mala meditation, which I learned at um, the Ramdas meditation retreat in Maui last year, it comes from the bhakti tradition, and you you basically count the beads and you pull them through your fingers, mm -hmm. and then when you get to the the other side, you go the other direction, and you say Ram Ram. Ram. So it's sort of like a mantra style thing, but it, you can do it with your hands. So then when I have the beads on me, every time they, they clink on something, or if I'm on a plane, I'll just pull them off and do a little meditation with it. Oh, that's nice. And that's common to a lot of different cultures that have beads, right? I mean, it's all over the world. I mean, isn't it in the Catholic tradition or rosaries or something like that? I know very little about Catholicism. <laughs> so, I, just, <laughs> I just have seen the, the beads and people usually hold them in their hands. Yeah. I, so, okay. So that's, that's the vibe it's giving off. Then it's, I'm getting that vibe. You're getting the vibe. Yeah, there's something totally. about it. It's just these little reminders. I like to have little reminders of, of mindfulness practice and meditation around me. It's one of those little things, even if I'm tasking about my day and rushing around and I catch myself in the mirror and I see the beads, I go, oh, okay, wait, just, it's, it's, a, it's a little reminder just to pop back to the moment and take a breath. That's a great idea. I, I need to consider, I don't think I'm the type of person that could wear beads like that, but maybe a bracelet or something. Yeah, bracelet. I mean, that's, yeah. that's traditionally how it's, how it's done. At the, the, the Ram Dass meditation retreat in Maui, you get a, a little bracelet at the end and then um, everyone does the meditation together. And so, yeah, I love the idea of little reminders what, of, of um, some way just to bring you back to the present moment. It could be beads, but the cool thing is that there's nothing really special or dogmatic about them. It's just a little reminder for me, or it could be, it could be a watch. You have a nice watch. You could do a watch meditation. You know what? I want to get back to the Ram Dass and learn a little bit more about it. Since we're on the subject of wardrobe and haberdashery, or I'm going to move to haberdashery, <laughs> the hat you're wearing, that's a glitch mob hat, right? That's right, yeah. And what does that symbolize up there? That you got some kind of a symbol. What is that? So the, it's the symbol, it's the, the logo for the band. And um, 
it came to us through a very interesting experience when we were writing our first album. This was in 2010. Our first full-length album was called Drink the Sea. Mm -hmm. And there's a, an incredible artist named Sonny K. And he was sending us ideas for this first single. And he sent this one that had that on there, which is, it's a piece of sacred geometry, but I actually had no clue what it was at the time. When we all saw it and right away we, we thought, wow, this is incredible. So we used it for the cover of the album. And then our fans actually just started taking to it. People started getting it tattooed. People started making shirts with it, but we never actually sat down and said, this is our logo. It just came to us. And then later in time, um, I saw it in text around sacred geometry. The two circles is called Vesica Pisces. And then if you look at the, the progression from one circle to two circles, and then you can see in the, the, the beautiful progression of the way that the, the geometry works, he had just taken that out of one of these, um, these books. So without getting too much in the weeds of sacred geometry, yeah. I mean, I've heard of it and I know some people that love it. Can you just, uh, you know, in a pithy manner, explain what is sacred geometry? What is that? I am not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but um, from from the little that I do know, there's these patterns that appear in nature. So, uh -huh. right, if you look at the the shape, the the um, the golden ratio, like the shell uh, of a, the shape of a nautilus shell, right. um, that could be considered sacred geometry. And there's some really good books around it that I. I don't know too much from a from an intellectual standpoint, but I just love going through and looking at stuff and the the, the patterns that appear throughout everywhere in nature. It's just it's it's um to me it it gets at the beauty of the overlap of of mathematics and mysticism because these things that show up everywhere are so um, they seem so familiar and they're so beautiful, but at the same time we don't really know why it's like that. So right, it's, it's kind of like numerology. Exactly. Right. Patterns. Patterns. We love patterns. Humans love to find patterns. Right. Because they hold secrets. That's right. They're keys to certain things. Keys to the universe. So Glitch Mob, um, you're one third. You were one third. You guys started a while ago. 2004, was it? Or something like um, we, the, the whole thing took shape around 2006, yeah. seven. That's when the, there was the genesis of it. But our first yeah. album came out in 2010. Right, and there's three of you now. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you're, what do you do in the band? So we're not a traditional band in the sense of right. there are there's like a, a drummer, a guitarist, or a singer. But because we're an electronic band, everyone does all. Uh, when we're playing on stage, we have a bunch of electronic gear, and everyone does different things. So at one point in time, I can go play the the electronic drums or tweak a synth, or someone else can then go filter something. So it's very um, egalitarian in the sense of we all are creating sound using electronics. It's mainly coming off of software. So it's very fluid in that way. So how do you kind of coordinate between these three people doing the exact same thing, right? In terms of how they generate sounds, mm -hmm. right? And you don't know what the other person is going to do. I mean, how do you make it harmonize with itself? Um, so the way we perform live and the way we, we create music in the studio, I would say are two sort of separate tracks. So when we're playing live on stage, it's similar to a traditional band in the sense that we have a, a set list and we know the songs that we're going to play. And then maybe like similar to how we would have some planned improvisation for a drummer during a song, there's little moments. But the cool thing about electronics is that we can say we've already chopped up a chord progression and it's, we, we already know that it's going to be in key. So when we're playing our electronic instruments, it's actually 
already perfectly harmonized right. and in key. So it's more of like we were talking about MPCs before we started. We come more from the the electronic MPC lineage where we're kind of finger drumming and sampling, and it's a, more of a rhythmic exercise than it is musical because it's all based off of Ableton. So we're playing back these massive sets of samples of our songs, and then and adding new layers as we're performing live. Very cool. So the name Glitch Mob. Um, glitch. Do you really, you know, where that word comes from? Because this is a controversy. But go ahead. I the the original. Yeah, the word glitch. I know. Is it is, Yiddish? Is what? Is it Yiddish? I don't know. Actually. It's a, that's the <laughs> yeah. that's the question. Is it German? Because it's German, right? And it's also Yiddish. I thought so, it was Yiddish, but I actually don't know the etymology. Yeah. So uh, you know, help in solving this mystery, huh? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, we know it crosses both. Um, which I had no idea until somebody pointed it out. This is good for me to know. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you guys were pioneers in what's called the beat scene. Is that right? Yeah, the the beat scene came out of um, Los Angeles and there was a a weekly event called Low End Theory and we played the very first one and that was the hub of of lo-fi underground electronic Hip hop, and we were part of the, the the wave of that as it came out of Los Angeles. And we also were playing shows in and around the Burning Man scene outside of San Francisco. So the whole thing came from a very underground, right. um, grassroots sort of mentality. But it has the the the, the hip hop ethos of going in there every week, playing these these beats, and having fun. It's the whole thing is very fun and very, very performative, but really it's about how far can we push our sound because with hip hop, right? It's like you, there's, there's a beat and then there's, there's an MC, but for us, it was, it's less about making a backing track for a vocalist and using the instrumentation and electronic tools to make something that would wow our friends and impress people and, and just have fun creating these new sorts of, of realms of experience. Yeah. And we cannot underestimate the influence of low end theory. I mean that that was a huge seminal factor in in creating new kinds of music coming out of LA of course but it was worldwide following Absolutely yeah And you had you guys were there and um you, who else was there I mean you have uh, I, I know that Radiohead Tom York loved to jam with uh, Yeah Gordana. you had the Gas Lamp Killer Yeah absolutely Flying Lotus came Flying out Flying Lotus yeah Flylo right Yeah, huge he, he's incredible out. yeah, yeah. There, I think there's something about it and the reason why people like Tom York would come in and enjoy or Erica Badu in the early days it has it it had this very um say grassroots but also this reckless sort of experimentation where it was in this dirty little club called the airliner in lincoln heights and there's it's it's kind of the opposite to, uh, to the glitz and the glamour of like a vegas club night with bottle service and um there's something about that 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 the grit of the music and everything i think really was a was a really beautiful and right place for experimentation and sent a lot of people off in different directions but the cool thing was that um being there and coming out of there it really allowed us to cut our teeth in a way that was the 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 experimentation was really rewarded and so that's that's been part of our thing the whole time we were never I, I never even, and when I first started doing this, I didn't even know what a manager was or that artists even had managers. I didn't even know what an agent was. I was doing other stuff and we were just messing around where we were, I had a computer, I made beats on Fruity Loops. And at some point someone came to us and they're like, well, you guys are playing a lot of shows. Do you have a, an agent? And I was like, 
what's that? So we, we, come, we come to it from a very kind of DIY, performative experimentation, the, the art side of things. And then, of course, since then, we've, we've, I, I learned about the music industry and what that really means, but that was never the intention. And, and Low and Theory really bred that kind of um, artistry. So what were you doing before Glitch Mob? I went to uh, to UC Santa Cruz and I actually studied film. And I was really into making motion graphics and using After Effects. And the, the similar technology and similar way to use technology with music where I just loved tweaking images and um, and messing around with 3D software at the time. I think it was 3D Studio Max, and I was just learning Maya. So it was still kind of like a solitary creative mission. And then Glitch Mob, the music happened. And I also fell in love with, I would make my videos in film school, but then really when I got Logic and I started making the music for it, I thought, wait a second, I actually like this more. And that's how it all kind of came to be. And then once once the, the music project started to take hold, I I moved down to Los Angeles from Northern California and I said, this is this is fun. Let's try this. So, were you doing any kind of music before you were in Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz? Yeah, I I come from the bedroom tinkerer mindset where I had a a, a computer from a very young age. Uh, my grandfather bought me one when I was five years old, which was an Apple IIgs at the time, which probably dates me. But it was it was enough to learn how to use computers. And so when I started to get into audio software. And then for me, it was really the rave scene. It was jungle and drum and bass. And I, I had uh, two turntables when I was 15 that I would go, I had just two records and I would sit there and mix them back and forth all day long. And I started going to raves and I got really into underground electronic music. So I was never in bands. I was never in, mm-hmm. um, I took a couple music classes here and there, but it was really the intersection of the art and the technology that really excited me. But I've been messing around with music pretty much since since I had a computer. Okay. So you had that solitary time mm-hmm. with you and the turntables. Yes. Which later on in life was going to translate into the solitary time observing your own mind. That's right. Right. Um, which is something that us, us musicians have ingrained in us, which we can call upon for this other practice of mindfulness and meditation. Mm-hmm. But moving forward again with Glitch Mob, you talked about an agent. So did you get an agent? We got an agent, yes, and and we got a manager. And uh, well, at first we had an agent who was just a friend of ours, who she was doing other stuff, and she thought, oh, maybe I'll try being an agent. Yeah. And um, and then once things really started to to gather um momentum, yeah, we we had an agent from at the time was Windish Agency, and then um our manager who are still with us today. Since pretty much since day one, aside from our friend who is this kind of DIY agent, and we've had the same team the whole time, which seems to be pretty rare in music world. And we really lucked out; we have an incredible team, and especially because we have such a deep relationship with them. What does your agent do? Um, the agent is for all the live stuff, so okay. they 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 book tours and and anything around um, performances. We do you know, we tour like a band where we'll play in theaters, or sometimes we'll play festivals we're playing a show this weekend which is more of a festival style show so we kind of we have one foot in dj world where we can go and play a dj set on cdjs or we can go and do more of like a live band style performance and the agent handles all that stuff right now i don't know when this is going to come out but i know you guys are on tour now are you constantly on tour are you always pretty much touring on and off, I mean. Yeah, on and off. Yeah, we go. It goes in waves. So we'll right now we have this this tour coming up. Um, the the first shows this weekend, August seventeen, 
Um, and it's called the Alchemy Tour, and it's a bunch of different electronic artists coming together. So it's almost more like a mini festival. And it's very, it's very much rooted in that. And then, so we'll go and play these festivals, but then we'll go and do a tour around our own music and, and more like a traditional band. We'll write an album, we'll go out and play it and perform it around the world. Our last album, See Without Eyes, came out in 2018. And then pretty much all of last year, we were around and on tour. Um, so it goes in waves. Like we'll have time at home to really create and, and dig deep and then go out into the world and perform it. Right. And this record company, you've been with this record company from the beginning. What is it called? Um, so we have our own label and it's called Glass Air Records. That's your own label? Yeah, that's our label. Yeah. We, we, we started our label in the very beginning and decided to put our record out on our own. And um, yeah, it's been incredible. So we're, we're completely independent. Who distributes it? Uh, the Orchard. Okay. Do they do a good job? They're incredible. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I love, um, I love the, the, the act of releasing music too. I, I, I don't think that running a label is necessarily for everyone, but it just so happens because there's three of us. And because I have kind of an entrepreneurial mind, I'd say, and I like creating vinyl and I like creating art and making videos and collaborating with people. So there's a whole other layer to it because we release all of our own music. And sometimes we release other artists, all three of us have side projects that we'll release as well. So it's a whole, it's a whole world there. But I love the the fact that there is no one that there's there's not a lot of red tape to go through when when you run your own label. Oh, that's amazing because you guys got pretty visible pretty fast. I mean, beyond low end theory, uh, I I first heard you guys on NPR on All Songs Considered mm -hmm. podcast. Oh wow. Um, and that's amazing for an independent label that you guys, how did that happen? I mean, how did you get your, your, was it organic or did you have a publicist or how, how did that happen? I think that it all happened very organically. We, we have had publicists here and there and, and that may have been how that happened. I'm, I'm not sure, but, but in general, we're pretty grassroots DIY tale where it was really, we haven't had any big like we haven't won any Grammys, we haven't done any sort of um, any had any radio hits, but our but our music, our fans love our music. We have a very dedicated sort of cult fan base, and um, we've done a lot of remixes, and I think that's helped um, doing remixes for larger artists over right. time spread our name out there. But it's been very very organic and very DIY, and especially because we haven't been on a major label, we haven't had that that major label marketing system. It's all done internally right the remix like for jack white uh seven nation oh yeah white. we did well the funny thing about that one was that that was a bootleg that we did illegally at the time this was around this was when people mp3s were a thing that people still would like download to their computer and listen to them before streaming and we um we i just i'm a huge white stripes fan i love jack white i love the white stripes so we mm -hmm. took seven nation army and remixed it and put it out so um, that was illegal, but eventually, I mean, illegal in, in the sense that they could have taken it down if they wanted to, right. basically a bootleg remix, but eventually it got licensed for a film trailer and Jack heard it somehow, someone through the film trailer world took it to him and said, Hey, we have these guys that did a bootleg remix of your song, but we really like it. What do you think? And he said, okay. So it, then it became legit and got licensed for the GI Joe trailer. So so it was worth it in the end to take the, and I'm not encouraging anybody to do this, but 
in your case, it was worth it to take that risk to step out and say, hey, I love this record. Here's my version of it. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting the way that streaming has taken over and people are more comfortable getting their music through a number of very large corporations. Because at the time, you could make a remix, post an MP3 on on whatever this was. This is around the beginning of SoundCloud or Hype Machine, or we actually would just post it on our website and people would listen to it. But now it's a little bit harder to do that because if it's not on Spotify, most people don't hear it. And I think that the fact that we access music through mainly through these corporations is not good for remix culture. Although SoundCloud, you can still kind of get away with it. But yeah, we come from the kind of renegade bootleg remix culture of sampling, right? Even some of our very first songs, we would just had a Dr. Dre sample in there. We we, we did a remix for mm-hmm. a friend of ours who had some, uh, I, yeah, he had a just G-Funk hip hop samples in there. We would just throw them in. But mm-hmm. now you can't do that um, unless you want to take the risk of of, of what might happen from that. So um, I, I do think that there's there's something to the art of sampling and and the the creation of music in a world where you're not concerned about legal ramifications of something and you're just it's all sound it's all it's frequencies out there to be taken and manipulated and created into new things more like a mosaic but you know if you're thinking about how the music might play out in a marketplace that you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about that right what about youtube you were talking about SoundCloud. What, yeah. about, what about doing remixes that are playing on YouTube without permission? Yeah, there's a lot of that on there. YouTube is kind of like the Wild West. There's mm-hmm. so much stuff on there that I think actually yeah, our, our White Stripes remix when it first came out did really well on YouTube. And then it was, it was also licensed for the Battlefield 1 video game trailer, which was just was crazy to us because it was really just uh, an homage to our favorite band. And it ended up because it's, I mean, that song is so iconic, right? It's like, not only does it have this this, this um, gravity to it, when, yeah. you, when you hear it, you feel like you can just smash any obstacles out of your way, but also now it, it has become the um, the chant for sports, right. which every sport, right. people love singing the bass line. So now you got the, the, uh, the trailer and you got this video airplay. So I'm assuming your manager played a role in all of this? Absolutely, yeah. So that's what the that's where the manager comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our manager uh, Kevin, who's been with us since day one, he he's done a lot of work for us in the licensing in film and television world. Although we haven't done a whole lot a whole lot of um, original stuff, but we've definitely had music licensed for for a lot of trailers in film and TV. Okay, is he involved in merchandise too? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have several income streams, right? You've got your record sales. And you guys do vinyl mm-hmm. versions. You've got your um, licensing that we were talking about. Occasionally, you get stuff placed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're touring, obviously, and then merch. And I was just reading something where they said that merch is the greatest source of income for independent artists. Is that true? In your case, it's not the greatest, but it's definitely a very big one. Yeah, when we, when we go out on the road, and sometimes people want to. If if they had a really good time at the show and they they say, well, I just I bought the twenty dollar ticket and I want to help you guys out. What can I do? I say buy a t shirt because um, it's chopped up the least, right? It's different if you if you want to go listen to our song on Spotify and you listen to it once, that's we get like point oh 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 four cents right. or whatever right. that happens to be. But if you buy a t shirt or a vinyl or something, then a lot of the money actually comes to us. 
So you have you have t-shirts, you have hats, you have vinyl, anything else you have? Uh, oh yeah, we've done all sorts of stuff over the years. We're doing these limited merch drops right now, which is fun. So we'll make, um, actually just before I got here, I was talking with our management about this t-shirt. So we made, I don't know how many, like a hundred of them for this show that we're doing in Long Beach and it says Long Beach on it. And there's it's, it's fun. So we create these merch drops where it'd be a package of a bunch of limited stuff where we've done notebooks, um, lighters, hats. We have, we've made these custom little dolls that a, f- a friend of ours is a toy maker. So right. we love getting creative with that whole thing. And I think that's also the benefit of being so DIY and being creative with it. And, ha- and um, we're also just so grateful to have this sort of fan base that loves the, um, just loves what we do and is there along the ride with us. And so we can get creative with these sorts of things. But you say it's not your greatest source. Can you say what is your greatest source? Um, or are they it's equal? I mean it it kind of changes over time. I mean I think that the licensing the licensing thing has has done really well for us in general. Mm-hmm. Um but that's also something that changes all the time and and I mean as you know it's a it's a marketplace in flux. So um but yeah we we've, we've we've had the honor of having a lot of music license for for um mainly for trailers. Mm-hmm. There's something about our sound um that lends itself to action right. trailers, which we never yeah. intended. We right. um, we just wrote our album as just in the in a total vacuum, and then later in time, people came back and and wanted to license it. Well, it's kind of a big sound what you guys have. It's big. It's aggressive. It's epic sounding. Absolutely. So it makes sense that it would translate into into trailers. It makes total sense. Yeah, and and it was it's funny too because I remember when we got our some of our first licenses. I I didn't again I didn't even know what that was or what that meant. I was like, wait, someone's gonna pay us for doing nothing. For this? <laughs> and I think and and it, that's that's sort of how it worked out. Um, and at the, I think that also because of the fact that we didn't really intend for that to happen, it lent the music a sincerity because it's it's different. And I think over time, um, knowing that it's been a it's been an active exercise to not let that come into the creative process you know so when we write an album we've written we've written two albums since our very first one and thinking about how um i think the best music comes from pure play and from a pure authentic place and not trying to con- be concerned sure. with how it's going to land in a marketplace i think about what am i going to listen to when i'm 90, I'm going to put on this vinyl and still be proud of it and not think that, the, that any of this was just done for money. I mean, that's really, and, and, and the irony of it is I think that that's still the, the best music, at least from my standpoint, that will be licensed or because it has something authentic to it. So if you were speaking to up and coming emerging um, musicians to trying to get a foothold in, in the public consciousness of their music, it's probably different now than it was in 2006, right? Yeah, definitely, Where, yeah. 13 years later. But um, I know low-end theory played a big role for you. Um, what else did did play a very important role in getting you guys launched? And then what would you advise somebody today? So I think that the other thing really is just the music. And I know that's... that's um, not a very deep answer, but really it was when we released our first album and we were doing a lot of touring, but there's something about the the 
authenticity of that album that people really connected with. So we were going through a lot at the time over there was like people with breakups and we had friends pass away and we thought we were going to make more of a dance record, which may have been a little bit more of calculated dance floor music. And I love dance floor music and we still make that, but with drink the sea, we were all like, let's just, it's use it more as a diary piece. And there's something that people really connected with about that. And it wasn't calculated. Um, and so I would say to, and I say this all the time to younger producers and even to myself, this is good advice that I still need to take is that learn to tell your own story. And there's something about the, the authentic way that you can communicate with music that you can't in any other medium and really lean into that. And I think that's even actually more important now because it's so easy to create music electronically. I'm, I'm speaking more about my world of electronic music, where at the time when we started, it was a little bit harder and it wasn't a cool, popular thing. There was no big EDM tracks on pop radio, although that like a lot of the pop music was produced electronically, but you can hear like a drum and bass track on in the, in the UK and the number one slot in the radio. And at the time it was a little bit harder to make that. And I'm, I'm really happy now that the tools have been democratized because you can take, we take someone and walk down to guitar center, buy a, buy a machine and boom, you have a finished amazing sounding track later that day. And of, of course it takes more artistry and time to be able to do that. But I think that now the benefit of having everyone have this this massive studio available, whether it's just on a phone or a laptop or Ableton, um, is that everyone can tell their story. But I think that because it's easier to make those sounds now, the the true, the the authentic music, the the telling of the story is what really boils to the surface. So I think it helps push that, and I think people need to really lean into that. And um, I'm also happy that I feel like genres are so mushed together now and everything is so weird. Right. It's, there's not a lot of clear lanes. And I, th right. I think that's a really good thing for music. And there's also a lot of cookie cutter music because people have figured out the formula. Um, and there's also nothing wrong with that too. Like if you want to go and, and follow a formula, I mean, I certainly did in the beginning, you know, it's like with drum and bass or making breakbeat music at the time, rave music. I mean, that's a formula too. And so we, we ultimately, after learning that, and I, th I, th I think of genres like as a conversation back and forth with people where there's rules, there's um, sorts of tropes that you use and quotations. It's okay in jungle where you can put a hip hop sample in there. And then where house music, maybe they'll use more soul samples or jazz samples. And it's a good way to get going. But for me, what ended up really pushing us off into a new direction. So we're kind of off on our own little island was really the reckless uh, experimentation and the, the authentic storytelling. So you mentioned tools. So what are your favorite tools right now? I thought you were talking about Tool the Band for a second. Yeah, just, I know. They just, <laughs> tool, yeah. they just dropped a new song, which yeah, is, the which new is album amazing. After how many, 13 years? Oh my gosh. Yeah, It's great. Go ahead. Um, so right now we use Ableton. And um, because we perform in Ableton as well, Glitch Mob, um, it makes it really easy to create in there and then to perform in there. I learned on Logic and we wrote our first album on Cubase. Um, my bandmate Ed learned on Pro Tools. Josh started on Reason, my other bandmate. So we've done pretty much everything and we all came back around to Ableton because it's just so easy and quick. And then and then right away, boom, now you're in a performance, um, performance space. So and does Ableton have virtual synths built into it? It does, yeah. There's a ton of amazing virtual synths. It takes plugins and everything. And I think that 
it's not as full featured as something like Cubase, Nuendo, Logic, where you can really do ultra complex things. But I see it more of kind of like a sketchpad because it's just really easy to to use. But but it is deep. You can do really complex stuff with it. But if I wanted to if I wanted to do a a massive film score with a lot of crazy time signature stuff, um, you know, maybe it would go back to Cubase or Logic. But for this, for just making quick ideas, for making ambient music, for um, chopping something, reversing it, changing octaves, throwing in plugins. You can also build your own plugins in there. Ableton, I think, is a much more um, quick and easy to use sketchpad. Do you use virtual synths that aren't built into Ableton? Absolutely, yeah. Like There's what? what? Oh, what do you so like many VST synths in there. Um, right now, I've been getting really into the whole, the, just the, the native instruments complete world is really incredible. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny too, because it's so deep. And also the whole Arteria set, I love all of the vintage synths in there. And then we we work a lot with Universal Audio plugins. And I just oh, love yeah. the, like all of the vintage emulation yeah. stuff. So in in the world of Glitch Mob, we try to take the digitalness and then use all these plugins to make it sound and feel more analog. So although it's digital, you might listen to it and 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 think that it has a little more of an analog sound to it. Use a lot of analog drums. We use addictive drums for recording drums. Addictive drums? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a drum plugin, which is incredible. But recently we've started- Would you use that with contact or- It's uh, it's kind of like its own contact. Okay, it's got, it's got its own DAW or whatever. It's just a plugin which you yeah. can you can use. Um, it sounds great. It's like there's a lot of those drum plugins for contact. Um, and recently we've started getting into modular synthesis. So that's back into hardware world, which right. is funny. It's like right. sort of like going back the other way. Yeah. Not only is it not a synth, but it's not, it doesn't, you have to put the whole thing together, but there's something very magical about taking the time to construct a synth or, or an effect box and um, just see what it does and have the randomness because the software, while I love it and, and um, it really is the heart of everything we do, there's something about the inconsistency of the modular synthesis that's really exciting when used to the precision of software. Now, when you mentioned UAD, you're talking about processing uh, plugins, right? You're not talking about synth plugins. It's, yes. It's mainly processing. Absolutely. Yeah, we love all the, the universal audio. Just fantastic like, stuff. They're yeah, incredible. I can't live without it. Oh, my gosh. What's your favorite yeah. one? Well, um, the LA-2A. Oh, yeah. The, it, I, I love it. Yeah, and the Fairchilds. Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, I just put <laughs> those on everything. Everything. Know, right? And yeah. then the Pultex. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember going into the studios and, and loving the Pultex, just the, what it would do when you put a bass through it or whatever, and it's just, great to be able to have it. Just a little that boost knob, and then yeah, it's just that sizzle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't live without it. Um so now we mentioned, by the way, we mentioned the beads and mindfulness, and I was thinking for your merch, you might want to do something with that, you know. That's uh, a great idea. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'll <laughs> give you 10%. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, can, can we leave that in the podcast yeah. or we have to edit that out? Yes. You know, I was, I was browsing in uh, Instagram, right? And I came on the Glitch Mob uh, site there and it said something about, we will answer your spiritual questions. <laughs> And somebody said, you know, can you tell me if I should keep this cat or something? I don't know, whatever. Where does that come from? That's amazing. So I love that you saw that. I haven't spoken about this with anyone yet. This is the first time and it's it's been fascinating. So um, the social media, I feel like has gotten 
convoluted. There's a lot of alg- algorithmic sorting that happens. So now Facebook is deciding who sees what when. Um, so there's this company called Community, which allows us to text our fans directly. So it's a platform, although it doesn't go to my phone number, but it's just an intermediary. So um, for fun, I started experimenting with it where I said, instead of just saying, hey, send us a text, I was just ask some questions, but people started doing that first. Someone was like, I feel like I'm, I'm not having a good day with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Should I break up? And so I basically turned it into this kind of fun, like helpline um, where it's kind of tongue in cheek, but at the same time, we get some serious questions, some really fun, but we've always been on the cutting edge of the, of the newest way to communicate with fans. You know, when Facebook first came out, right. we were, we were on there a lot. And then it feels like it's just turned into this whole dumpster fire over there and don't even really pay much attention to it anymore. Instagram was kind of the same thing, although it's still, this that's definitely certainly the most popular one or Snapchat. And I mean, we'll, we'll do all that, but I really like the one-on-one interaction and there's something about texting people and especially because it's not in public, right? So someone, people have asked us really deep questions or said that their music has, has gotten, our glitch mob music has gotten them through a really difficult time and people have have brought up these really personal things that they might not have been comfortable saying in public. So I'm actually here texting with fans and and um, that has been incredibly special and fun. And, and for me, um, it reminds me of the power of music because it's so easy to get lost in algorithms and marketplace and streams and blah, 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 right. blah. But really we create music and then it means something to someone right. and then it's part of their life. And then that's that's really what we're here for. Yeah, that's a, an amazing, beautiful thing that music has this power to, as you said, the person said it, it saved their lives. I mean, we hear that, helped them so much through hard times. And the irony is those of us that are actually in the music business or making music for us, we need something else, right? right. If the music doesn't have that effect because we're doing it all the time. So do you find that to be true in your experience that music alone is not enough, that we need something else to help us cope with whatever challenges life is gonna throw at us? Yeah, I mean, music still plays a very, very important role in my life and I do find a lot of catharsis and healing and depth there in my own musical process of of enjoying music. Um, and, and I'll typically enjoy music that I don't make, right? So I love ambient music. For me, I'm just totally obsessed with it right now. I have a new ambient side project. I've been doing yeah, we're gonna stuff talk about that. In, that, in that whole world, but because it's so opposite of Glitch Mob, which is loud, it's epic, it's angular. Um, so music for me is a whole, it's a lifelong learning learning process. But for me, the magic of it is really in the overlap with meditation practice. So how did you start with your meditation? What, what, what inspired you to do it or motivated you to start it? Um, you know, I've been obsessed with, um, I wouldn't say obsessed, but very interested in meditation practice and Buddhism for, for a very long time. And it was funny because i had books about meditation and I just hadn't tried it. And, um, I had growing up, there was Alan Watts books lying around the house. There was some Ram Dass books and it was around me, but my, my family didn't meditate. So it was, but it was funny because I just didn't take the, take any classes or do any meditation until much later in life. But I had been reading all these books and it's funny because 
in retrospect, it's like reading a book about working out and just sitting there and doing that, not actually going to the gym. But for me, it was really, um, and I had tried it a little bit. I had done some of the exercises in the books, but it was really going to a, ta- a TM class that my friend invited me to through the David Lynch Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, that really set me off. Transcendental meditation. Yes. Yeah, it was right. transcendental meditation. And there was something about going somewhere to learn for the whole weekend, where he's going first thing in the morning and learn all the meditation practices and then try it. And there's this whole practice and a ritual around it. Right. And then you have a prescription of basically homework of twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, that that I, I needed that. I needed something that was so structured to really get me to do it every day. And then with the daily practice um, was really when I started to see things unfold. So you you went for a whole weekend? It was something you, you were residing there? You had to live there? Um, no, in the TM classes, I mean, they, they do them in so many different ways, but the one that I did, um, you just go to classes in the morning okay. through the evening and learn the meditation practices and meditate with people there. Right. It was really like something about investing the the time and the energy into learning this whole process instead of just reading about it in a book and then having people teach me and then getting homework. It's like, okay, so tomorrow morning, first thing when you get up, brush your teeth, get your ass on the cushion, and you're gonna do that every day. Right. And that was when I really, it really started to make sense to me. But to ha- having that that daily practice like a muscle be, be part of my morning routine in the same exact way as I brush my teeth right. every single day. And you had somebody to be accountable to. Exactly, right? accountability. So and I had to ask you, did you meditate today? Or what? Absolutely, and that was a big part of it. My friend yeah. Brandon, who invited me, was Brandon. also doing his, uh, Brandon, De- Brandon DeRoche, a different, okay. different Brandon, okay. Brandon. Um, um, okay. Yeah, we were talking about Brendan Eskimo. Yeah. Um, he invited me, and he was doing the TM practice, and still is as well. So we could talk about it, and then having the community around it really um, made sense, and it helped helped drive everything home. It's just like how if you have a book that you really like, and you read it with someone else, and you discuss it, all of a sudden it starts to concretize in your mind in a, in, a, in a different way. So it was it was the whole structure around transcendental meditation that really started to hone my practice. Although I've gone and tried many different forms after that, but one thing that I really like about that, the, the TM thing is, is, it's just this daily thing two times a day. And it's simple, but if you follow it, it's it starts to really hone the um, the concentration in the mindfulness container. Well, um, so they give you a mantra, right? And they tell you this is your personal mantra, yes. right? It's a and secret, this, top secret. You can't top say Top secret. And there's anyone. a lot of controversy over that yes. because there are former people that did TM that were taught it that said, you know, there's a limited amount of mantras yeah. that, that, that they're already prefabricated. and uh, But it's, helped, it's helpful for a lot of people, right? So you just repeat the sound over and over again, that's the object, right? Absolutely. I, th- I think of it, for me, the the metaphor is like, you know, if you go to the gym, you can go to the machine and you can pull the thing down, do, do the, uh, the lat pull down machine that's on a wire, or you can go and over in the free weights where there's not as many guides. And so it's a way to really get started with some sort of rails there that you can use, which is the mantra. And the mantra is, it's a sound that you're listening to in your mind which I feel, in a way it can almost drown out your thoughts. So if I'm having a very 
sticky day. And I, I, I say sticky in the sense of like, my thoughts are really sticky and I feel right. like Justin has so much to do. Oh right. gosh, I don't have time to meditate. Right. I still will use the TM practice because the mantra really, right. it's, a, it's a very blunt force instrument right. for me to get into the present moment um, before I started learning the other practices around following your breath. But really, I mean, the cool thing about the the mantra is that you can you can use it anywhere, and it it's something that's really really easy to to drop into, especially when you do it you do it every day. And I think I mean I don't know this, but I I suspect there's something around the secrecy of it, where it keeps it. it, it there's some mystery to it, and it's you know it's not an English word, right? Because it's if you're doing a mantra, and let's say you are doing ocean. Mm -hmm. Ocean, right. ocean. Well, now there's so much that's attached to what the ocean might mean to you, and the this this um, the, you maybe I smell the ocean. I think right. of the last time oh, I want to go swimming, and all right. of a sudden now you're thinking, thinking, right. thinking. So the mantra is just a way. It's more of like a a ship that takes you below your thoughts, right? And uh, it's the repetition. Yes, I mean, there's a famous book Harold Berenson wrote, the relaxation response, where he worked with a TM and tried to find, well, what, what is, how does it actually work neuroscientifically because he was a, a, doc, a medical doctor or whatever. And one of the things he said is when you're repeating a movement or a sound or you know, whether it's a mental repetition or a physical repetition, it elicits what he calls the relaxation response. Mm -hmm. So just the repetition alone of a movement like that will elicit this relaxation response. Right, that makes sense. I mean, I think of it in terms of like how if you if you put a baby on a dryer or something, it can help them fall asleep or the sound of the ocean um, waves breaking on the shore, something repetitive. Whereas if you hear, there's a book, there's a part in this, there's this book, uh, This Is Your Brain on Music. Mm -hmm, and he's right. talking about how, um, Repetitive sounds will put you to sleep, but if something is, you know, like traffic going by, it's round, round, and if it's not in that in a regular rhythm, right. it'll wake you up. Right. And he was saying how imagine if you were if you're sleeping out in nature, our distant ancestors, and some animal was coming to get you, and even if there's a tree uh -huh. that was that was brushing over your hovel at a regular pace, that's okay to sleep because there's going to be sound. But uh -huh. then if so, another animal comes in, we don't like irregular sound. And I think of the same thing too in terms of like walking meditation where you're just taking a step and a step and a step and it's the same sort of thing so i, I it's really the same have to sort of thing in terms of being repetitious yeah exactly yes. there's something about the, the repetition yes. i would love to read that book though that that makes total sense to me the, the relaxation response mm -hmm. but it's about concentration in terms of the mantra right that that's what the uh the main part of your your mental energies are focused on is one thing, right? So that's the definition of concentration, right? right? So you focus your attention in one direction. Now you mentioned that you tried other methods of meditation. What, why did you have to, what did you feel about TM that was not fulfilling you? Why you needed to, to move on to other techniques? Sure. Um... I decided to go into Vipassana retreat just because I wanted to fully immerse myself. Whereas t TM, you know, it's once in the morning and once in the evening and something about going on a long retreat, silent retreat where that's all I was doing, that felt like the next level for me. Um, and it was, and it opened up a whole new world of practice. Whereas the, the TM practice, although there are other classes you can do and everything, it felt to me like, 
learning how to ride a bike. And you can go ride your bike every day and it's going to make you healthy and it's a good thing to do. But now with the Vipassana practice, now you're learning to fly or, <laughs> or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's something totally different, right? And it for me, it opened up so many new worlds of, of perception and it made me feel like, wow, I'm, I'm just an absolute kindergartner as far as this whole practice is, is concerned. Whereas like, even though I'm not saying... I don't like the idea of saying that, well, you are a good or bad meditator, because I think that kind of misses the point. As long yeah. as you're sitting on the cushion, yeah. it's all really happening. Yeah. But um, just all of the the practices that that came out of the Vipassana retreat um, really opened my, my mind to the concept that I didn't get from TM, which is that the meditation practice is happening all the time. Because for me, and this is not a slight to TM, maybe I just missed this part of the homework. But for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to get on the cushion. I'm going to meditate for 20 minutes. And then I'm just going back about my day. And then I'm going to be mindful again. But it was really the Vipassana for me because I I had the the concentration practice in my my tool belt, but it was, we're we're walking, we're eating, we're sitting and the whole, oh, wait a second. This is all of it is all part of the practice. So I don't think you know. You, you mentioned your your. You think it's your fault that you're not. You know, you weren't able to connect to mindfulness. But you know, if meditation is two parts, the foundation is concentration because that allows you to be able to be undistracted, unfragmented. That your mental and physical energies are all focused in one direction. But the problem is with concentration is limited. It's great. It's like building a muscle. But now with mindfulness, you just open yourself up to whatever arises in your field right. of experience, right? And from moment to moment, you're paying attention to whatever happens. And so that's, it's kind of like build a, a building or a tower, right? The foundation is concentration and then mindfulness is limitless. It's infinite, right? right? Although some people say, well, after mindfulness, there's insight, you know, right. where you really get deep. Um, so that's, you know, that's, I can understand how with TM that was building up your concentration muscles and then you wanted to, or you found yourself advancing to opening up your awareness to, to a pure awareness, yes. even without any contents, just aware that you're aware. Absolutely. And, and there was something about, for me, I had this total light bulb moment on the first day of Vipassana after we had entered noble silence. And we were going, and he was showing, the, the teacher was showing us, or we're talking about eating. And it was the same thing. And I thought, you, know, you take your fork and you put it in the spinach, you put the mm-hmm. spinach in your mouth and you set down your fork. Mm-hmm. And thinking about how often, here I am, even after meditating, I'm scarfing down breakfast, checking my email right. and getting in the car. And now I'm, I'm, I'm gone again. Right. Um, and so that was a real aha moment. That's, that's, that stuck with me, although it's, I'm certainly not, there all the time, but it has allowed me to um, to strengthen the muscle of coming back over and over again. So how many days was this retreat? 10 days. Wow. So that's pretty intense. So for 10 days, you're in silent and they taught you mindfulness meditation? Yeah, Vipassana style meditation. And so- Vipassana is uh, Sanskrit, I guess. Yes. Meaning, means mindfulness? It means right? insight. Insight, right? Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, there's so many different things that you learn on a on a retreat like that, but really it's the just being in it all the time for 10 days where you get up super early in the morning, meditate, 
So what, what, how do you meditate? What, 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 what did they teach you in terms of the um, technique? So it starts off with just following your breath. For concentration. Yeah, for concentration. And you just pay attention to the just the sensation of the breath coming in and out of your nose. And then you sort of move it around your body. So you're doing a body scan. Then it progresses from there. And they also would give talks as well. So right. um, there's there's instructions around different facets of, of Dharma that would then that you could then sort of sit with for the day. And I started doing walking meditations there, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. And I still do mm -hmm. quite a bit. Lovely. Yeah, there's something about the walking meditation that, um, again, it kind of liberated this idea that you have to be sitting on a cushion. It's funny to think that for me, when I was in the middle of the whole TM practice, I thought, um, oh gosh, I'm feeling stressed. I got to go meditate. Blah. But really, it's 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 not the need to be on the cushion to do that thing. It's the it's a, in, from a sort of escapist standpoint. It's more of for me the um, the light bulb moments have all been around. Everything that happens can be used for the practice. So how do you? Where do you walking? What do you do the mindful walking? So the the uh, the walking meditation. Um, which is something that also um, our mutual friend Brandon Eskimo and I have done down at, at Deer Park, which is in, in the whole, the world of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, he, it's all about the walking meditation. So the, um, the way that I learned was you pick a, a line, let's say it's 25 feet, we have an hour, um, and then you just slowly walk across that line. Is this indoors or? Yeah, this was outdoors, this is out in Joshua Tree in the desert. But you can do it anywhere. And so basically just walking as slow as you possibly can, feeling every single part of your foot right. touching the ground. Maybe it's crunching on rocks. Maybe there's a bug that runs across and you don't really pay attention to the bug. You're just noticing all the sensations and feeling the wind and the smells of the desert. All of a sudden, what seems like at one moment can be, wow, this is so boring. I'm just walking back and forth on a line. Great. But, but all of a sudden, at some point, there's a switch for me. And then it became this beautiful animated experience of taking these incredibly slow steps. Right. Um, and there's so many different ways to do it. When And yes. Brandon took me down to to Deer Park and we, did, yeah. we walked silently yeah. up to the top of the hill yeah. and then back down again. Yeah. Um, and being present with something that you do all the time is, was really impactful for me. And I love the idea that we're walking around all day and it's, a, it's that's something that we do so much. So bringing mindfulness to that has been really impactful. Yeah, Thich Nhat Hanh, <clears throat> I think he's the master of uh, popularizing walking meditation. Right. And uh, he has a, a monastery near San Diego, Escondido. That's right, Called yeah. Deer Park and your friend Brendan, AKA Eskimo, famous and fantastic composer. Um, took you there to learn what, and was Thich Nhat Hanh there at the time? He was not there, no. So I was there with Thich Nhat Hanh when he he was there and we did Amazing. walking meditation and I know the hill you're talking about, exactly. <laughs> and that was just an amazing experience to be with him and doing his thing, which, you know, he taught us all how to, how to do it. Um, and it's very powerful. Extremely it's, powerful, yeah. It's, it's another, it's kind of like, you know, you need, uh, you need to have the drums and then you need the top line. Right. You know, and I don't know which one is which, but sitting meditation and walking meditation, they go hand in hand. Right. I would say sitting, sitting's the drums. Sitting's the, the, the rhythm <laughs> section, right? That's, right, That's yeah. the foundation. Yeah. So 
so uh, and you still you have this practice daily of walking meditation with sitting. Oh uh, no, no, I, okay. I, I do sitting every day, and then with, if I'm out in nature, that I'll do a walking meditation. Like if I'm on vacation or just. This past weekend, I was up visiting Lake Tahoe with some friends and get up and do a do a walking meditation because it's a nice way to be out in nature and meditate at the same time. So I found the limitation of of mantra of the sound mm. repeating in your mind. One of the limitations was that in the pauses in between, the silence in between, I wanted to experience that deeper. I didn't want to have any sound. You know, to me, the sound is a gateway into silence absolutely yeah and um do you find that too that that when you can reach into that silence that it's just uh that stillness and silence is uh reveals a lot of uh, truth absolutely yeah i mean i think that's something that that they teach you in tm as well where you use the mantra to get you to that place and then you can if it can fade away and have that moment of just fully inhabiting the space between the thoughts before something else starts to pop in. But then I think, well, is this sensation of no thoughts, is that also a thought? But without getting too wrapped up in the the the, the helix of that, um, I think that for me, it's really this, it's the silence where the magic really happens, where, um, and I love guided meditations too. Um, you know, I've, I do them sometimes. I, I have a couple of teachers that I really like. I feel like for me, that's like going to a personal trainer where someone's else is there to keep you accountable. But really, um, the, like all my most transformative and transcendent moments have happened in silence and it hasn't been right. from a guide, but I know that mm. it can help, it can really help people get into it. And it can, and, and I use them too sometimes when I need a little right. extra nudge. Right, there, it, you know, me meditation isn't just one thing, it's a whole spectrum of things, and there's so many different ways to practice the li phases and levels that you, you know, you go through. So sometimes you might, you know, want to focus on a, a concentration technique, and other times you want to focus on just an open mindfulness or mm -hmm. a pure awareness technique, right? And you said the transformative experiences that you've had have been in silence. Can you talk about those? What has have those experiences sure, been yeah. like? Um, it's it, the the whole thing is very curious to me that it's not anything that I can really control, and as soon as you control it, it starts to go away. I, I feel like um, with meditation, we're so goal oriented in in Western society that we want to attain meditation in order to become a better X or Y. Or for me, it's the moments of really dropping that whole story and just being being present when I've been able to to inhabit the space between thoughts and notice the 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 full sense of consciousness in which our ego and all of our thoughts um are animated and when and when I've had that experience of touching that that sense of pure consciousness in which the thoughts occur there's something very liberating about that and um and feeling like we are not our thoughts. I am not my thoughts. I am not this fear. I am also not the desire to meditate, which is also just another another thought. But 
we need our ego and we need these thoughts to make music and to go buy groceries. There's nothing wrong with these thoughts or their ego, but just having a little experiencing the distance from it. And it's also different from the philosophical distance. We're reading a, reading an Alan Watts book where he's talking about it, which I love, which is another sort of reminder to point back to these experiences. So I'm like listening to old Alan Watts lectures all the time because it just reminds me of these sorts of things. But um, but but having that that visceral sensation has created some space between between me and my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you bring up some really important, beautiful points. We need the ego as artists, right? And it's totally ego. Like we create these things, we put ourselves out, you put yourself out there and you say, like me, right? Right. It's so personal it's, and you're so sensitive. We're so vulnerable to being rejected, to you know, not having you know, the second record be as successful as the first, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But we have to have that ego because it gives us the confidence to be able to create something and put it out there, right? right? And it's a double-edged sword. Because you mentioned it's liberating. So when you free yourself from that prison of identity, it's a great feeling. Wow, I'm not just this ego, this uh, thought and talent or whatever, this thing that's within this bag of flesh. Right. It's, it turns you inside out. Right. Everything exactly. on the outside, right? And it's, it's incredibly liberating. And I think, you know, the reason, uh, see what you think, if, if you agree with this, that um, musicians particularly have a hard problem coping with it because, you know, we have to live in, in so much ego space. You know, when we're making music, we aren't in that ego space necessarily. We're immersed in the music. It's about the music. Right. How do I get this song to sound as good as it can? Mm -hmm. And we're connecting with something that's beyond us. It's bigger than us. Right. So we're used to that transcending, but then we get off the stage. And okay, you know, did we sell tickets? You know, how, how are we doing well right. with merch? And it's all these pressures and stresses that you know, are ego-driven. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's 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 a funny back and forth, and I think that musicians, especially the people that write the sort of music, like I, I when you're when you're saying that, just Kurt Cobain came to mind. Like, what a sensitive creature! And I was just listening to this interview with Rick Rubin where he was talking about how sensitive Kurt Cobain was, and that's why he wrote such beautiful music because he just felt so deeply. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that where with music, you want to feel something very deeply. You want to have someone who's like this open wound or a processing mechanism that can really pour this stuff out for other people. But on the other side of it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of grappling that can happen there. And I think mental health is, is there's a reason why this, this comes up in conversation over again. And we've lost so many musicians too soon. And I think that, um, We've also, our culture has woven in the idea of suffering and artistry together. Mm -hmm. And for me, um, the meditation practice has pulled me away from that whole story. Cause there's, you know, there's the whole like rock star legend of drug, sex, rock and roll and that whole thing. And, um, and it's funny, I'm even just, just going back and listening. The other day, I was randomly listening to Motley Crue and just thinking about what... I love Motley Crue, and it's just, the records are so good, and thinking about what that whole thing represents, and then laughing at myself, being like, I'm in, I'm, I'm in a band, and I'm playing these festivals, and I'm like going and drinking matcha and meditating and not doing that whole thing, but really just dropping that whole story and being okay with 
the um this the the care around these things and and for me i think that um it's easy it's easy to also get wrapped up in the meditative identity as well and and um i try to not proselytize around it too much although it's good to have a conversation with someone such as yourself who's also had this sort of experience um because i feel like people need to find their own way into it and i also don't think it's necessarily a a complete tool set um i think that it for me it's almost like this ground to stand on and i'm blessed in the sense that i don't grapple with mental health or have to deal with with pharmaceuticals but i know friends that that do that have tried meditation that it's actually not enough on its own but i do feel like it's it's something else to stand on knowing that there's this sense of of awareness that is not subject to the the gnashing and clawing of your thoughts and fears um in the same way that we're just used to all the time right it's not a panacea i mean you know right. the book 10% happier Yes. And not making claims that it's a hundred percent happy. Right, ten percent, maybe fifteen, <laughs> maybe maybe eight. Well, he says Dan Harris, who wrote that, says it could be more. Right, but I'm only saying ten percent happier. Right. Yeah, it's but it once you get deep into it, it changes the way you see everything. Yes, and that helps you in life. Maybe it helps ten percent, but you know, it just changes the world for you. Yes, and the way you see yourself and and how it fits. And you bring up the suffering artist. Um, the suffering doesn't go away. You know, right. I get this question all the time, and I don't think I've been very good answering it. Uh, people say, well, if I, and by the way, that's more than meditation. Meditation is one thing. Mindfulness translates to other aspects of your life right. rather than when you're sitting formally and meditating, right. right? So that can translate every minute in, in relationships, whether it's business or personal and in other ways. But I get this question, yeah, if, if I get into mindfulness or, or meditation, I won't be in pain anymore, so I won't have anything to write about. Right. And as you know, it doesn't take away the pain. No, it doesn't. And even if it did, even if it did take away the pain, you know, you're assuming that your creativity just comes from your right. pain. Um, it could come from a lot of different places yeah. as well. And also you're assuming that it's only your pain that you can feel. Mm -hmm. um, somebody said, if the whole community has somebody in it that's still feeling pain, then I'm feeling pain. Right. They said that there's two ways to experience loneliness. You can feel lonely in the world or you can feel the loneliness of the world. Right. That everybody else is lonely too. Right. So you can feel other people's pain when you get into this practice, which could you know make your creativity bring it to a whole other level. Yeah, and I think I, I could not agree more with what you said around this. And I've had conversations with people around: Will meditation take this away that I feel like I have, or will it make me will it, will it make me lose my edge? And what, what will mindfulness do to my Type A drive? And I think that. Um, as far as the pain goes, it just ch it changes your relationship to the pain, right. but it doesn't make the pain go away, right. right? So it's like in in a silent retreat, if you're sitting there, you can you can experience great right. amounts of pain <laughs> sitting right. for a very long time, right? So it's like you're doing these very long sits, and all of a sudden you think, "Wow, my knee hurts." Now my knee really hurts. I'm gonna die. And then you look at all these other people, and you think, "Well, they're not dying, okay." But you your ego starts to freak out and want to push it all away, but then you start to realize, but wait a second, it's really just about the pushing and the pulling 
of the pain and your relationship to it, then you can transmute pain into something else. It's almost like this this alchemy where you don't have to you're you're not being pulled around by this constant need to push bad things away. It's like oh, that's that's a something that Ramdas always says. Who's someone that I, I love reading his books and listening to his talks. He's like, ah. Uh, now this, it's almost this right. sort of like pithy reply to what's happening, or he calls it grist for the mill, that everything that comes up is now something that I put into my right. my practice. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's it's not about an, an escapism, or people think that you need to go to the Himalayas and <laughs> <laughs> meditate in a cave <laughs> to really get there. And um, I do hope to go someday and go meditate up there. But <laughs> but really, it's 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 just being in everyday life that that's right. plenty of stuff to deal well, with. Well, you talk about proselytizing and Ramdas, he's quite a proselytizer over the last 30, 40 years. But it's a question of, you know, we have in in music what I you know, know as the four horsemen of the musical apocalypse, hmm. which is anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicide, or suicidal tendencies, self-destructive tendencies. Mm-hmm. And we go through stuff. And when we find something that helps us, Pull and pulls us out of that and wards off these plagues. We want to share it with other people, right? Um, that's in our particular case, and we have all these great musicians like Paul McCartney, Leonard Cohen, uh, Philip Glass, Kendrick Lamar, and they talk about the benefits of these practices and how it's been useful for them and how it's helped them. I mean, Kendrick has a song where he goes, "Meditation is a must. It don't hurt if you try." And J. Cole says, meditate, don't medicate. So these musicians are not shy about talking about how you know mindfulness meditation has helped them. Absolutely. And yeah, I think there's just something about when you're when you're taking a minute just to be with yourself. I mean, even if if meditation is just that, just sitting in a room alone, silent, because I think we have so many distractions around us all the time. The distractions are becoming more and more sticky and more insidious and social media and phones and Netflix, blah, blah, blah. We, we know that story. And I think that right now um, it's really important to be able to just, to just sit and just be. And that's, that's one aspect to the meditation practice where even if you're just doing that, that if, even if you sit on the cushion for 20 minutes and your mind is running crazy and you're not able to achieve present time awareness, people ask me a lot, their friends are getting into meditation. They think, well, I'm, I just suck at meditating. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, my mind is too crazy. And you yeah. think, well, no, we're all there. That's the yeah. thing is we're all the same in that yeah. way. We yeah. have this, this, this um, lizard brain that wants to, our, our, our ego wants to get things and take things. And um, it wants status and hierarchy and food and sex and blah, blah, blah. And really just taking a minute to, um, I think that meditation is like an antidote to to all that stuff that's also built into us. Oh, that's a good, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much built into us. Everybody's meditating, they just don't realize it. That's right. <clears throat> and I flash back to you when you're 15 years old with your two turntables. <laughs> that's right. Two turntables without a microphone, as Beck would not have sung. That's right. Um, you've got your two turntables, you're in a room by yourself, and you're practicing. Right? And you're developing patience and perseverance because you're not getting it the first time. Um, and those qualities that you're developing when you're 15 as a musician, DJ, musician, electronic musician, those are the same qualities that you drew on when you started TM, to sit 
with yourself, with the sound and the repetition, the patience, the perseverance, the keep going, the discipline, Yeah, 20 minutes a day. So you, when you were 15, working as a DJ and electronic musician, you were building up these skills and working on your sensibilities. And so transferring, what I see is that you're transferring these skills to this other practice. Do you, do you feel that? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, th I think about the, um, think about discipline a lot. And in, in some ways it can sound very unsexy to a creative. Um, and to me, you know, around that time, if you would have told me that's what I was doing, I don't think I would have agreed with you, but, um, I like the idea of, of the, the duality between discipline and inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, on one hand, you need the discipline just to show up on the cushion in the studio every day and do your work. But at the same time, it's not like you're coming into the studio and you are um, doing something like, so for instance, I used to work in a restaurant and I would, sh I would have to show up every day and just cut broccoli. That's all I would have to do. And then I would make, make I was working at a sushi restaurant that would make tempura out of the broccoli. But that's only one piece of it because I think that the ability to show up and cut the broccoli and do the thing, but you also need the inspiration and the things outside of that in which be, the, that become the art. So for me, um, having that practice and especially the solitary bedroom style producer that I was, for me, meditation and mindfulness practice came really quickly and really mm -hmm. easily. And I was just funny, just before this, I was talking with a friend of mine that that's going through some um, schooling around TM and mm -hmm. she's she's having a little bit of a, it's, it's taking her longer to get into it. And for me, my first actual 20 minute sit was complete out of body. I remember coming back and, and the teacher said, how are you? And I thought, how long was that? Was that three minutes? No, that was 20. So oh. I think for me, um, and the other reason why I chose music over the film industry was also when I, when I took a directing class and I realized that I had to work with 20 people, that wow, this is crazy. I'm just so much more of a of a solitary sort of okay. person, and I have so much respect for people who work in film. And part of what you do is being creative, but part of it is also being a leader and a wrangler of many different personalities and egos. And I mean, there's there's definitely an element of that in live music as well, certainly. But um, the creation process is solo, and that's that's just really calls me a lot more. And you speak about the creation process. You're working now on doing music for um, two and Alan Watts. Yeah. So um, through this whole process, I started making, uh, I started with the Ram Dass piece where I, I took one of his meditations that I just absolutely loved and I put ambient music behind it that, that has current production um, Right. skills and process behind it. So it just sounds like I, w I really wanted to take this and almost make a time capsule out of it for something for other people around me. Um, By the way, I think it has more bass in it than any other meditation <laughs> it's, it's music. Definitely. Right? I mean, <laughs> when that bass comes through, and uh, where do you get that from, by the way? Where do you get that kind of gong, bassy sound from? What, what, oh my gosh, that? I don't even remember. Yeah, there's so, I know the feeling. There's so many, there's a lot of contact instruments in there. Yeah. But it's true though, because you can hear, yeah, like when I was making that, I love the feeling of bass and a sine wave hitting. There's something about it to me, the super, super low subs remind me of the ocean or something like this. So there's something very comforting about it. Or like even I think about when I hear sub bass and the reason why we, no matter what, in every genre of music, 
when the bass drops, everyone just gets happy. And, and there's something about that that I feel like is very, is very primal. So I like taking the palette of electronic music production and mixing it with these these um, meditations or the sort of spiritual teachings from, started with Ram Dass and I'm working on one with Alan Watts Foundation now. This is the same sort of thing where I'm taking an old meditation of his, breaking it up into little chunks and adding bass and music and everything behind it. And it's gonna be more of those to come. I look forward to hearing that. Oh, thank and you. I love Alan Watts's English accent and his his whole vibe. He's the best. The best. Yeah, I mean, listening to so I have access to the uh, to the archive with um I've become friends with his son, who's incredible, with Mark Watts, and he's given me these hours and hours and hours of a lot of the um the music that or sorry the the hours and hours and hours of teachings and of audio from Alan Watts that he recorded himself and part of this whole thing that we're going to launch. So when the Alan Watts piece comes out, we're going to launch a campaign around it to raise money to digitize all of the rest of the Alan Watts tapes. So he has this this massive archive of wow. stuff. And, um, Great. and he wants to have it be available to the public for anyone for time to come. So around this release of my piece, we're going to create a whole campaign around that because I think that it's it's been so meaningful to me. And in these things, for me, it's just a little, it's a rabbit hole down. So if people come into the world of Glitch Mob or they discover me and they see, oh, what is this? Who's this Alan Watts character? And they go down. And for me, it's something that I can come back to all the time. So I just hope to kind of point to something that's been meaningful to me. Yeah, it's marvelous that you're working to help bring Alan Watts to more people because they could use it. Yes, yeah, he's, he's incredible. A big influence in my life too. Oh, that's great. So also just something about, he's one of the greatest orators of all time, I think. Yeah. I mean, even if you or you don't like listening to someone talk about spirituality and Zen and Tao, he's just such an incredible person to listen to, listen to speak. I think that he's just fantastic. Yeah. I think we covered- uh, There's a lot there. There's a lot there. I'm trying to think if I had- you know, I know, I know one thing I wanted to ask you. Um, so you're involved with a, a VR company. Mm -hmm. so, so you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Tell um, us about that. So I have a new project that I've started with a friend of mine named, named Matt Davis uh, called Superposition. And Superposition is ambient music. So we're, we have an album we just finished, very, um, I would say, deep and kind of on the, the, the healing side of, of things. Um, and when I say healing, I mean that it. we want to make people feel held by the music. It's a safe space. You could meditate with it, or you can just put it on in the background or whatever. And so through that process, um, we've been brought into a company called Trip VR, which is a um, meditation uh, mindfulness sort of game that uses VR. So it's for people. It's, it's. I would say it's probably the easiest way to get into it because there's a lot of breathing exercises that are visualized mm -hmm. in, in the game. Mm -hmm. And I call it a game because it's not really an, an app like guided meditation, some similar to Headspace, where people take you along. It's more of like you're in this whole world, right. and you could give it to anyone. It sounds like it's not meditation. It's not mindfulness per se. It's just a different kind of experience that's it related. It's a cousin. Yeah, it's a cousin, yeah. or it's like a, a a branch off of the tree. Yeah, because it, like you know, truthfully, in, in meditation or mindfulness, you want to be inside your own mind. That's right. And somebody, you know, some social scientist was saying the reason people are so stressed out these days is because we're we evolved with very little, very few people uh, 
giving us stimuli from their minds. Right. Whereas with, you know, an Instagram, you get stimuli from so many different minds and we're not evolved for that. So it's completely stressful. Right. We're living in, in a uh, in a web of other people's <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. Being, we're just drinking it like a smoothie. Oh, thoughts, thoughts, thoughts. Mmm, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much thank for being so here. Thank you so much. It's been incandescent and uh, lovely. And I look forward to all the uh, the VR and the new music and everything else. Thank you. And, and um, I really cannot wait to read your book. I think that... Um, the overlap of all this stuff is so needed right now. And um, the way that you're tying music and, and mindfulness together, as far as I have seen, has not been done before. So I really can't wait to dig in. I'm, I'm giddy. Okay, thanks. Beautiful. Thank yeah. you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks again to Justin Beretta. You can follow Justin on his social media, which is at Beretta. That's spelled B-O-R-E-T-A on Instagram or Twitter, and look out for his new production musical accompaniment to Alan Watts, and it's called Dream Listen, and it will be released on November 22nd. I also want to thank my co-producer, Hannah Bowers, as well as our uh, spectacular intern, Jane Yee. So if you like what you heard, please uh, give us a good review. Share it with your friends and anyone you think could benefit from listening to us. And you can follow us at Wolf in Tune. So until next time, I hope that you stay in a high octave and that we can stay in tune. Thanks.